But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and with the voice of an archangel and the sound of a trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, we encourage one another with these words. This is the word of the Lord. I've been held by the Savior. I felt fire from above. I've been down to the river. I ain't the same, a prodigal return. All oh, my hope is in Jesus. Thank God my yesterday's gone. sins are forgiven. We have been washed by the blood of Jesus. and He is our hope. You may be seated. We want to welcome you to uh, Community Christian Church. And uh, our kids can be dismissed at this time. There's programming down the hall for them. I did see some new faces today. So if you're new here with us, my name is Dusty. And we are glad that you are here worshiping with us today. Today's sermon and next week's sermon are kind of having an Easter-ish flair. And actually, if you chart it out on the calendar, we're about halfway through the year until we get back to Easter again. And so I'm just going to start this way. He is risen. 
Oh, very good. You got it. Uh, most of you who are in that flow, let's try that one more time. He is risen. He is risen indeed. The people Paul is writing to in our text today knew that truth, that he is risen. He is risen indeed. But there was one thing that they were unclear on. They, they did not know what exactly that meant for them, and especially for their loved ones who had already passed away. What does it mean that he has risen? And so these people were taught exactly what you and I were taught about the faith uh, we belong to, that, that Jesus died, that he, he was buried, he walked out of a tomb alive. They were taught that he appeared to his friends and to his followers and even to a group of 500 people at once. And after about 40 days of these kind of appearances, he ascended into heaven and there were angels there as he did it and as he went up and they said to all the people who were watching Jesus ascend into heaven, they said, don't worry, Jesus will return. He will come back in this very way that you have seen him go. That's Acts chapter 1 verse 11. And so these people in Thessalonica that people that Paul is writing to, uh, they're anticipating that Jesus will come back. They're taking Jesus at his word, the angel at his word. These are people who were so close in time to the resurrection of Jesus that they really had no reason but to believe that Jesus would, would return in their lifetime. Like they thought it would be soon. Surely he's coming back for us any day now, right? And so they were ready. They were eager for Jesus to come back. They're watching. But enough time passes by that some of those believers die, right? People die, right? Life happens, right? And so these very Greek people who had come to Jesus, Atlas and Daphne and Ophelia and Theo, they come to believe in Jesus and they start to follow him and they're waiting for the return of Jesus and life happens until it doesn't and then some of them pass away. And now the question for everybody else that's left is, wait a minute, when Jesus does come back, well, I get that he'll be with us and, and he's coming back for us, but we're still alive. What about, what about Atlas and what about Daphne and Ophelia and Theo? I mean, they've already passed on. They're six feet under now. What, what happens to them? Do, do they just miss out when Jesus comes back? Do they not get to be in on the day when Jesus comes back because they died too soon? That doesn't sound right. And that was a great dilemma for these early believers, and they hadn't anticipated this as a possibility that some of them would actually die before Jesus came. And apparently that issue has been laid at the feet of Paul. And that's what he addresses in our text. And in his answer, Paul gives to them and he gives to us by extension a way to navigate death. He gives followers of Jesus a way to face death that nobody has. And it's actually the only way with hope. Um, our series that we're in right now is uh, called Shaped by Hope, and we're, we're taking these great passages that have to do with hope, and we're exploring them because our lives today are shaped by what we believe about tomorrow, even when it comes to the issue of death and dying. And so Paul says, we have a hope as believers that can even shape this monster of death that is looming over all of us. Paul gives us this hope, and he, he gives us uh, hope by way of a couple of negative statements and then one affirmative statement. And so I'm going to use uh, kind of that to talk about 
uh, things today. Let's, let's take one of the don'ts, and then we'll talk about the do's today. The first, the don't that I want to talk about is this. Don't be ignorant about your hope. Look at, look at verse 13. Paul says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as, of, as others do who have no hope. Paul says, when it comes to those loved ones who've passed on already, don't be ignorant about the hope that we have. Now, I use that term ignorant because that's the word that the NIV uses if you're reading along the NIV. The ESV in front of you uses the word uninformed, and that's what ignorant really means. Uh, We use sometimes in our daily conversation this word ignorant, and we mean by it that somebody is stupid or senseless. Uh, But that's not what ignorant means. Ignorant does not mean unintelligent. It just means unknowing. To be ignorant is to be uninformed. And so by that definition, we are all ignorant, right? Yes? Say yes. Yes. We are all uninformed about something. You are smart people, okay? But by, by way of example here, even though you're smart people, I am not letting any of you come anywhere remotely close to me with a scalpel. Why? Because you're ignorant in the area of surgery. There's only one person in the building today, okay, that is informed on how to cut out an appendix. And even even him, I'm not sure if I'm going to, you know, let him come at me. But the rest of you, you're ignorant. You're smart people, okay? but you're just ignorant about doing surgery. Paul says, don't be uninformed, don't be ignorant about what is happening when people die, even as they are waiting on the return of Jesus. Now, there's only one way that I know of to be informed about surgery, and that's to go to med school. Takes a long time, right? And just like that, there's only one way to be informed about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and what it means for my life today. I have to learn. I have to think. I have to reason. We need to be informed about the resurrection and learn and memorize and remember how it gives us a greater hope than any other hope that we've ever been offered. And so one of the challenges in this little statement by Paul is to begin to compare our hope, measure it out, Weigh it against all of the other hopes out there and see how it stacks up. And so let's do that a little bit this morning. We can do it right here in this passage. Paul brings up several ways that we can compare our hope to other hopes. He says first this, this hope that we have is greater in love than any other hope. What are some other hopes out there in our world right now when it comes to death? Let me just give you two. Uh, These are the opposite extremes. One hope is this. When it comes to death, there's nothing. Everything just ends. That's a real popular hope right now. And some people actually take comfort in that. That everything's just going to end. Here's the opposite extreme. When death comes, there's not nothing. There's something. But that something is just that you will be absorbed. That life will continue, but you'll become a part of a universal consciousness, kind of like a drop going back into the ocean, and you kind of lose your individuality, but, you know, you'll still be part of the collective, right? Those are two different hopes out there 
in our world right now? What about our hope in this text that there is life in Jesus? That's our hope, right? How does that compare to those other hopes? And I want you to look in this text about how often Paul describes that this hope includes being with. It includes being together. He says, we will all be caught together in the clouds with the Lord. And so our hope in Jesus is that you will not only continue to live, but you will continue to live and be with friends and family and loved ones that you've lost in this world. You will have them back. More importantly than that, we will also be with somebody else. We will be with him. Look at verse 15. Paul talks about the coming of the Lord. It's a little weird little word that's sometimes translated appearing, the appearing of the Lord instead of coming. But it means to have a personal presence. We, we will not only be with those we've loved and lost, but we will also be with Jesus himself. Verse 17 says, we will be with the Lord forever, with the Lord forever. And so what Paul is talking about here is, is not just the appearing of Jesus, not just the coming of Jesus. It's, it's actually more than that. It's, it's the getting of Jesus, for lack of a better way to, way to say it. It's, it's meeting him. It's being in his presence. It's having a face-to-face relationship finally with Jesus himself and being with him in eternity forever. And so our hope is different from those other hopes. We will still have relationships and even greater ones after this life is over and a new life has begun. Now, here's why that matters. Because nobody on this earth who knows you completely can love you fully. Nobody on this earth who knows you completely can love you fully. Let me give you an example of that. Married people, okay? You know this. As much as you want to be totally open and honest with each other, you're not. (laughs) Why aren't you? Because you have enough selfish and angry and vicious thoughts in your head about each other that if you actually said them out loud, you wouldn't have a marriage anymore, right? There are some things that you just can't, you just can't say and you've agreed not to say those things, okay? Nobody on this planet can know you down to the depths of who you are and also love you to the moon. People may love you. They may think that you're great. It's just because they don't know you. That's why. If they did, that love would evaporate. And yet, and yet, this is what we want in life. We want to be fully known and we want to be fully loved. And on this day, this day that Paul writes about, that when we get Jesus, when we meet him, and when we walk into eternity together, we will be loved like we've always hoped to be loved, all the way down and fully. He's coming back for you. Now, think about that, okay? Compare that, be informed. A popular hope out in our world is that there's nothing after death. One popular hope is that you'll be a part of this universal consciousness. Those are all out there. If love, if the love that we all hope for ends in nothingness or in the loss of ourselves, as those other hopes would say, are those really hopes at all? If you grab onto one of those other hopes, you're saying that the thing that you want more than anything in this life 
to be, to be fully known and fully loved, that just ends? And that's okay? No, that's not hopeful. The love we all long for is one that never, never ends. Every song in your playlist right now that you put in your ears is about wanting love not to end. And that only hope happens with the living hope of Jesus. Here's, here's the second one. Um, this hope that we have is greater in life than any other hope. Uh, Paul launches into what this getting of Jesus at the end of time actually looks like, and he gives us a very uh, descriptive picture. It's, it's a curious passage for a couple of reasons. One says, uh, one is that Paul says he got this imagery according to the Lord's own word, okay? So we're not real sure what that means. Is this a vision that only Paul gets? Is this a teaching of Jesus that nobody else has written down in this way? We're not really sure, but wow, is it cinematic? I mean, this is the stuff of films. This is, Paul's getting a, 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 a film festival award for this, okay? Listen, according to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Now, the other curious thing about this little picture here, here is if we map the events to see what happens. And so let's just do that, okay? Uh, Paul says, we who are alive won't precede those who have died. So those who have died uh, will come back with Jesus and there will be uh, a large, a loud call in voice and in trumpet from Jesus and uh, the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive will be caught up and we will meet them all in the air, even in the, in the clouds, that's what he said, and then we will be with the Lord forever. Okay, then what? I want you to notice where Paul kind of leaves us. This is the curious thing about this. Are we not all hanging in the air with Jesus? Say yes. Yeah. <laughs> then, then what, Paul? Paul just says, we'll be with him forever. Okay. Forever where? Forever just hanging in the air with Jesus, I guess. Paul is kind of leaving us hanging here. <laughs> okay? That, that was free today. Here's, here's what we assume when we read this. We assume that we will all go to heaven and we will all be with Jesus forever. That's what we assume. But that's not what's happening here. And the key word is in verse 17, this word meet. We will meet the Lord in the air. This is a word that was used in the Greek culture to describe an event where a conquering king would go out and he would win the, win the war and win the battle, win the territory, whatever, and he would come back into the city. And as he was coming into the city, all the people before he got to the city, the people of the city would go outside the gates to meet the coming back conquering king. And it means that they would join in and they would be included in the entourage of the king that was coming back in. Instead of waiting inside the walls, 
for the, for, for the king to come inside the city with all the spoils of war, you would, you would actually go out and you would meet him and then you would come into the city with him. And so those who did this, who went out, were actually participating with him in the conquest and in the victory parade when they came inside the city. All that to say this, what Paul is saying here is not that we are going to be taken out of the world when Jesus comes back but that we are going to go out and meet Jesus as he is on his way back again. That's astounding to me. Because Jesus is coming back into the world to make it once and for all finally what it is supposed to be. And we get to be by his side while he does that. We're not going out of this world to float on clouds. Jesus is coming into this world, and we will be with him. And what that means is that this passage is all about our bodies and the physical reality in the world to come. Just as Jesus was resurrected into a perfected physical body, we will be too. That's good news. We'll have perfect eyes. We'll have perfect hands. We'll have perfect hearts. We'll have perfect arms to hug with. We will sit and eat with Jesus and each other in degrees of power and perfection that we cannot now imagine. And that is the only real defeat of death, isn't it? So let's think, let's consider, let's be informed about this. If we're just spirits floating around on the clouds together with Jesus, then that isn't really a conquering of death, is it? Death wins in that case. If death brings nothing, then death wins. But our hope is that death has been defeated even to the point of having our bodies back better than they were before, having our families back better than they were before, having our abilities and our potentials back even better than they were before. We will be more ourselves than we've ever been because Jesus is our living one more. This hope we have is greater in liberty than any other hope. I want you to remember in uh, the, the weeks leading up to this one, we've covered about three weeks about hope, and we've defined hope in this series. And hope does not mean uncertainty. That's, that's the way we use it a lot. I, I hope I can get to the store before they close, right? Uh, I, I don't know. That's not biblical hope. Biblical hope is the life-shaping, joyous certainty of something that's coming but has not come yet. That's hope. And so now I want you to look at what's coming for us. Look at verse 17. We will be with the Lord forever. When you put your hope in Jesus, you've been appointed to eternal love and for eternal physical life. You've been appointed to be known down to your depths but loved to the stars Anyway, now how is that possible? And in order to find the answer, we have to go down just a few verses. We didn't read all the way this morning. We just, we stopped. But if you read on through chapter 5 and down to verse 9, um, Paul gives us implications of all of this cinematic portrayal of Jesus coming back. And one of those implications is this. It's found in verse 9 of chapter 5. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live in him. Paul
writes that God did not destine, or another word to use there is appoint. He did not appoint us to suffer wrath. Notice this, he did not. He did not, as in past tense. He doesn't say this, you know, if you just live a good life and make sure you pay your taxes and don't kick the dog, then God might not appoint you to suffer wrath. No, no, no. It's not there might not be condemnation for you. It's there is no condemnation for you. He did not appoint us to suffer wrath. Our hope is that Christ has taken the punishment for us, that he has paid the penalty for us of God's wrath against us, and now it is not appointed to us. And so think about that. Compare that to all of the other hopes out there. Be informed about this hope that we have. There are many, even in the church, even sitting in the pews today, that might have a little different hope than I just explained. The hope that a lot of us had to work through and work out of goes something like this. Man, I hope I've done enough. I hope I've been good enough in this life to be a part of God's family. I hope. I know I've done some bad things, and I, but, about, but I've tried to do some good things, and I just hope that at the end of time that the scales just tip the right way in the end. Many of us have had that kind of hope. Some of us have that kind of hope right now. I want, I want to tell you that that kind of hope leads to self-righteousness on one hand or on the other hand, anxiety. It leads to pride on one hand or despair on the other because if I can prove myself, then, oh, man, look at me. But if I can't, then all hope is lost, and that's not hope. That's not hope at all. The only hope that works is a hope that does not die. We've been saying that every week. And that hope that does not die is Jesus paying for your sin on the cross, taking God's wrath for you so that your future is now certain. It's certain. I want you to look at the last line of the text. It says this, therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you are doing. In this text, there's a couple of don'ts. Don't waste your tears. We, we did not cover that today. Um, actually, we'll cover that in our sermon cut class uh, right after. If you want to stay, we'll be right over here and we'll talk about don't waste your, waste your tears. Uh, but the second don't is don't be ignorant about your hope. That's what we just talked about. Now, it, now it's a do. Paul says, do encourage one another with the living hope that you have because Jesus is coming back. Paul writes to these people and he says, I know some of your friends have passed on and I know you're still alive right now, but it does not matter because Jesus is coming back. Jesus will come back either with us or for us. If we've passed on in this life, then he'll come back with us. If we're still alive, then he'll come back for us. Either way, we're going to be safe. It was December 5th, 1914, and a guy named Ernest Shackleton had the goal to cross Antarctica by dog sled. He wanted to go 1,500 miles across the most inhospitable terrain on earth. And so he and a crew of 27 men set out on a ship named the Endurance, and for six weeks, they just attempted to get there, and finally their ship became frozen into the ice pack. 
And so there was nothing they could do but hunker down for the winter and wait for the spring thaw to release the ship. After 10 months on this ship, this wooden ice prison, uh, spring finally came. And when it did, the ice was so unstable that it actually began to crush the ship to pieces. And at that point, Shackleton gathered all of his men around and he said, there's a brand new mission now. The mission now is to get every man home safely. And so they, camp, they, they got all the stuff out of the ship that they could and they set up camp on this giant piece of ice, hoping that this giant piece of ice would carry them toward an island where they had some provisions stored. But once the ice was floating, they realized that it wasn't floating the right way. They were being carried out to sea. And so they had saved a, a three lifeboats from the ship and they used them. And after seven days and nights fighting powerful currents and freezing rain and massive icebergs, they made it to an uninhabited slab of rock uh, and ice called Elephant Island. And for the first time in 497 days, they set foot on land. But they weren't even close to home. Elephant Island, if you know the story, is, uh, is barren, it's isolated, it's outside of any shipping lanes whatsoever, and no one on earth knew that they were there. Pro their provisions were running out, and so Shackleton determined that their only hope was to take one of those three lifeboats and get a little crew together and attempt to, to sail that little lifeboat 800 miles away to the nearest whaling station, 800 miles. As he shoved off with a portion of the crew, Shackleton promised the rest of the men that he would come back for them. The remaining crew of 22 men uh, were left behind. They were, they were led by a guy named Frank Wild, who was their captain. And they used the two lifeboats that they had left they turned them upside down. They used them as shelter. There was almost perpetual darkness, uh, so they made lamps out of sardine tins, and they used surgical bandages for wicks, and they burned seal uh, blubber oil for, for their lamps. They hunted penguins and seals to eat. Sometimes the winds were so strong on this island that they could barely keep their feet under them. The, condition, the conditions were so miserable that they all started calling the island not Elephant Island, but Elephant Island. That's how it went. They were stranded there for over four months. And then one day, Shackleton appeared. And as he approached the island with the rescue ship, he saw men gathering on the shoreline to greet him and he saw this little figure sitting on uh, a rock and he recognized that figure to be Frank Wilde who he had left in charge of Elephant Island and he called out to Frank, are you all well? And Wilde answered, we're all well, boss. And all the men cheered. For four months on a chunk of rock and ice in Antarctica, Frank Wilde never gave up hope that they would be rescued. He held all of his men together. He had held hope alive in their hearts. And one of the things that he would do 
is that early in the morning, he would step out of that boat hut that they had made, and he would look out onto the sea, and whenever the sea in front of them was clear of ice, and he determined that a rescuing ship could make it to them, he would go back inside the boat, and he would roll up his sleeping bag. And he would wake everybody else up, and he would go around, and he would say to all of his men, roll up your sleeping bag, boys, the boss is coming today. The boss may come today. He said it every day. And then one day it was true. And that's exactly what we have to do for each other. Paul says, encourage each other with your hope. Wake up. Wake up. Roll up your sleeping bag. Get dressed. Put on your shoes of faith. Put on your coat of love. Wear your hat of hope because the boss is coming back to save us, and the boss may come today, and we need to do that every day. Say that every day to each other, because one day, it will be true. Father God, we wait for the loud commands, we wait for the voice, we wait for the trumpet call that tells us you're back. We're waiting. That's our hope, that we will live with you and with each other forever. And so let us always be watching, and let us always be ready. And it's in the name of Jesus, the Lord of both the living and the dead, that we pray and everybody said.